You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Hi, I'm Dan Darling, your director at the Land Center for Cultural Engagement, and I'm delighted to have here for a conversation Dr. Thomas Kidd, who's a historian, uh, teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, author of many uh, books about America, including American Founding, uh, American Religious Liberty, biography of Benjamin Franklin, George Whitfield, but now has a new biography of Thomas Jefferson called Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Thanks for joining us today on the Way Home podcast. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. So uh, you are a historian, and uh, I think you're well, people are well aware of your books on uh, Benjamin Franklin, books on the American founding, religious liberty, the religious movements in America. Why did you think now is the time for another, uh, a new Jefferson biography, and what is unique, you think, about your approach to his life? Yeah, well, of course, there have been many, many books written on Jefferson. He's probably maybe second only to Lincoln as far as the most written about presidents. Um, and so uh, I thought that there was a place, in, especially in this cultural moment, for a biography of Jefferson that is trying to answer sort of the moral question about Jefferson, which is, you know, how could he live the way that he apparently lived with uh, obviously owning hundreds of people as slaves um, and carrying on a long-term sexual relationship with one of his slaves. Um, when he's the one who said all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I mean, I think when a lot of people in American pop culture think about Jefferson, that's kind of the, the question that they have. And a lot of time the answer is just hypocrisy. And, and that, okay, that's, that's a good place to start. But I, I also think that there's a place to look at who Jefferson was in his time, what he actually believed, which was kind of a mess and, and, and figure out how all these competing impulses and contradictions sort of made sense in his own mind and in his own context. And so it, really what I'm trying to do is, is answer what I think is the most common question uh, about Jefferson, which is just how do you explain this disjunction between his ideals and then his actual life? Yeah, he, he seemed, you know, he's a bundle of contradictions. He is. On the one hand, you know, helps, he's one of the architects of the the framework under which people can experience liberty, right? More people have experienced freedom, perhaps, than any other time in human history. And yet, in his time, and, and even in his personal practice, did not extend that to, to people of color, uh, had slaves, not only had slaves, but had a relationship with a slave, um, an exploitive relationship with a slave. In some ways, is it fair to say that Jefferson, in some ways, that his bundle of contradictions is, is, is somewhat of an embodiment of America itself, that you know, we have enormous good, freedom, virtue, you know, uh, Christianity is widespread here, and that we have all these other sort of uh, national sins as well. Would he, is he sort of an embodiment of America itself in, in that way? I, I think so. Um, and you know, when for me as an American historian, I often tell my students, you know, you would think like, well, you know, the Civil War, like that ended slavery. Didn't that fix all of our 
problems about race and ethnicity. And then you fast forward 100 years and you're still having to struggle over the most basic kind of ethnic and racial equality about voting and you know, economics and, and so forth. And that's why you know, Martin Luther King is doing what he did 100 years after slavery was ended. And so there's a long persistence of these kind of struggles about race and inequality and, 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 and so forth. And yet, the, all those things are so conspicuous because of especially the, the Declaration of Independence. I mean, I think we wouldn't notice it as much if we didn't have such high and inspiring ideals. I think, you know, the greatest ideals in at least modern world history um, come from the American founding. Um, and so that really, in a way, I think, shines a spotlight on our, you know, national failings and, and even sins, as you said. Yeah, explain a little bit, too, how the words all men are created equal. You know, th these are words that we sort of take for granted and, and, and think and, and popular culture, like, of course. And, and in fact, as you said, where we see that there's not equality, we're offended by it, right? Um, and, you know, you think of um, both Lincoln and then 100 years later, MLK, Frederick Douglass in Lincoln's time as well, appeal to those words, to that phrase, mm -hmm. all men are created equal. Explain how radical that idea was in its time. It was uh, like with everything with Jefferson. There's a way in which it wasn't radical at all. I mean, he's he's speaking to an audience now. Jefferson, even by 1776, is skeptical about basic Christian doctrine, mm -hmm. but he's speaking to an audience that is largely not skeptical about basic Christian doctrine. Um, and he he also, uh, as a thinker himself, is he's certainly a theist, and he believes in a creator God. And so I think Jefferson, you know, later on he talked about all he was trying to do in the declarations was to reflect the harmonizing sentiments of the day, mm. right? And so it's a, it's a political document and it's saying something about basic human equality that's very broadly accessible and agreed upon in American culture in 1776, uh, which is that um, to the extent that we're equal and we have rights, it comes from our common creation by God. And of course, that's a deeper tradition, especially in, in Christianity and Judaism, mm -hmm. that, that he's drawing on there. But there were other ways he could have said it. I mean, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which came out about a month before the Declaration of Independence, said that all men are by nature equal, which is that doesn't have the same oomph to it. You know, and so if Jefferson was being totally sort of secularist enlightenment in the way that he was going to phrase it, who would have just grabbed that language and said all men are by nature equal? And of course, people would have said, well, God sort of stands behind nature. But in the Declaration, I mean, he makes it so explicit about the activity of the Creator, endowed by their Creator, mm. right? God is active in, in Jefferson's Declaration, even though he's a skeptic about Christianity. And I, I think that that is why, even though Jefferson, you know, people say, well, who did he mean by all men? I, I think in the short term, he definitely meant sort of white political men, men like Jefferson, right? But because of the way he said it, it's universal um, and, it, and it's theistic. And that gives people ideas. And so there are African-Americans like the, the New England pastor, Lemuel Haynes, in, 17, in 1776, he says, oh, all men are created equal, then we shouldn't have slavery. <laughs> right. I mean, that's not revisionist history. That's what Lemuel Haynes said in 1776. Right. Right. And so it gives people ideas because of that universal 
theological quality to what he said. And yet you talk about how in the book about how he re- Jefferson wrestled with his own words, that he wrote those words, created this country, and yet even in his time, there are voices saying, okay, we need to live up to that. Why do we have slavery? And it seems like he waffled back and forth a little bit on that question, right? And even in his own life, um, uh, owned slaves, but then at times felt contrition over that, but never actually did anything to free them. So talk about the con- the contradictions even in his in his time uh, around those words. Yeah, I mean he's he's very clear by the 1780s that slavery is immoral, um, and one of the most directly providential things that he ever wrote was in notes on the state of Virginia, and he, he said. You know, I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. And he's talking about slavery. He's saying, you know, the, the judgment of God is going to come against us for the sin of slave on him. It's, a, it's an unusual thing for Jefferson to say, but it's in the only full-length book that he ever published. Notes on the state of Virginia. So, I mean, it's not like it's not representative. Mm. And so that's a kind of baseline for Jefferson that when pressed, he would always it meant that slavery was not right. Um, but as you said, he, he is under such difficult economic straits, personally, his financial situation is a disaster, that, I mean, there, there's just no way he would ever consider freeing his slaves en masse. Um, and he also explains to himself um, as a justification about not freeing slaves, that if you freed the slaves en masse, he said, you would have a genocidal race war because the African-Americans are going to be so bitter about their experience under slavery that whites and blacks will try to kill each other. So we can't, we can't do it right away. Maybe sometime in the future, maybe sometime we'll get to the point where we could do this slowly, but not now. And so that's his sort of political justification. But people keep coming back to him, friends who are abolitionists and so forth, and they say, don't you think you should, you've said that's wrong, don't you think you should do something? And you know, he has he has sort of this list of excuses for why he can't. Did this debate show up in his relationship with Adams? You know, Adams obviously was against slavery. Uh, John Quincy Adams, his son, was a uh, early abolitionist. Was this a source of contention between Adams and Jefferson? Well, Adams and Jefferson had um, other reasons to have problems in their relationship, most notably the presidential election of 1800, right. in which Jefferson defeated Adams, sitting president. Um, and so they had become estranged after that uh, election. They, they had been friends for a long time and then, and then became as, as badly estranged and basically didn't talk to each other for 10 years. Um, and so when they got back in touch after both of them retired from politics, it was a little easier you, you know, at that point for them to get back together being friends. And um, I think Adams... Had a, had a very clear sense of what they could talk about and what they couldn't talk about. And for the most part, slavery was off limits. Um, but, uh, but Adams did occasionally, late in their both of their lives, he would push a little bit, um, but he was very careful to, because uh, Jefferson, candidly, he was pretty touchy. Um, and, and I think Adams was afraid of breaking their relationship again. Let's talk about Jefferson's faith because it's complicated, right? Um, I think we most people know famously about the Jefferson Bible where he cut and pasted parts he liked, parts he didn't like. Um, I think most people th- probably think he was probably some sort of a deist, 
but you say that's not not that's not exactly the right uh, label for him. So talk about his complicated um, religious faith. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I wrote another book on Franklin, and, and Franklin, by contrast, he called himself a deist, right? So we, that, that's kind of where we start with Franklin, is he said he was a deist. Um, Jefferson didn't say that about himself, and, and he, he very rarely used terms like deist and, or deism in his writings. And when he did, he tended to mean um, just a simple faith in one God. Um, at one point, he even said Jesus was a deist that Jesus had that simple faith in one God. And he also believed that Jesus was not that God. Right. <laughs> um, so he did for very early on, he doubts the Trinity. But on the other hand, I mean, he is a, a, a monotheist in a, in a fairly conventional way. I mean, I mean he, he's very skeptical about Christian doctrines like the resurrection and the Trinity. Uh, the divinity of Christ. He doesn't believe in any of that from a pretty early age in, in adulthood. Um, but he does believe that there is one creator God. Um, and it's something like, you know, the God of the, of the Jewish and Christian traditions, powerful God that created the world somehow, maybe not like what Genesis says, but somehow created the world. I mean, what else could there be? This is pre-Darwinian thinking, right? But he also believes that God sometimes intervenes in history. And that, that's a characteristic of sort of classical deism is the watchmaker God who created the world, but has gone away now. He hasn't fit that category. No, he, he doesn't. And, and he believes that God intervenes sometimes. I mean, even when he says, I tremble, you know, when I think that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. He's talking about the prospect of God intervening with judgment against America for the sin of slavery. That tells you right there that he thinks sometimes God intervenes. And then I think by the time he becomes president, which is fairly late in his, his life actually, he becomes convinced of Unitarian Christianity, of you know not Trinitarian, that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but not the Son of God, but that Jesus' moral teachings were the superior moral teachings of all uh, history. And so when he says after that point, I am a Christian, that, that's basically what he means is that he's an ethical, naturalistic Christian who believes in one God, not a Trinitarian God. Mm -hmm. One of the parts of Jefferson, obviously, that we can appreciate is his interaction with Baptists and his formulation of this idea of religious liberty that, again, we take for granted today, but was a, you know, a rare kind of uh, occurrence back in his time. Talk about his willingness to engage uh, Baptists uh, on this this idea of religious liberty, how that unusual alliance came about. Well, in the late 1760s, early 1770s, as we're in the lead up to the revolution, I mean, Baptists are being really badly persecuted in colonial Virginia, mm -hmm. um, where Jefferson and Madison grew up. And um, Jefferson and Madison are, are watching Baptist preachers being put in jail and beat up and, you know, just really bad persecution. And, and I think that they match that experience of watching the persecution of the Baptists up with kind of Lockean political theory uh, about religious toleration. And they come to the conclusion that this kind of vicious persecution of, I mean, they think the Baptists are kind of crazy, right. but they don't deserve to be persecuted. 
And I think Jefferson in particular thinks, you know, if they come for the Baptists, they'll come for me next. And so by the time you get to 1776, Madison and Jefferson are leading the political charge for what we call disestablishment of the, of the Church of England in Virginia, uh, defunding the, and, and allowing all the Christian denominations to have kind of a, an equal playing field. Um, and uh, their, their biggest fans in the rank and file in Virginia and in the rest of the country in that effort are just normal everyday Baptists because Baptists are you know, one of the most persecuted of the Christian groups in America in, in, in that era. And so it's sort of a, a, a happy coincidence, I guess, that, that you know, someone like Jefferson, who is skeptical about basic Christianity, he finds common cause with evangelicals, especially Baptists, because they reach the same conclusion, which is that the government shouldn't be playing favorites between denominations. We shouldn't have a state-sponsored church. You, you know, the Baptists say, just let us preach the gospel in freedom. And Jefferson says, let people believe what they want in freedom. But they kind of come to the same conclusion. In your biography on, on Franklin, one of the things that was really remarkable to me is to recognize that Franklin, though not a what we would consider a, a Christian who has you know, sort of orthodox beliefs, nevertheless grew up in a sort of milieu of Christianity, particularly Calvinist Christianity. Is that the same thing for Jefferson? That Jefferson, even though he, he rejected a lot of the central claims of Christianity, did he grow up in that sort of environment? And so was his, whatever we call it, deism or, or sort of uh, universalism or whatever, is that, was that sort of a rejection of the faith of his parents in, in some ways? It was. I mean, he grows up in a very conventional um, Anglican Church of England kind of environment. Um, his father is a leader, in, in, a lay leader in, in the Anglican Church, and, and Jefferson is too at times in spite of his own skepticism. He's a, a, a vestryman, you know, in, in the Anglican Church. So he does grow up in a, in a deep Anglican tradition. Now, I think the difference with Franklin is Franklin grows up in a Puritan family in Massachusetts. And that means that Franklin knows the text of the Bible uh, probably better than any of the other major founders. Jefferson knows it, but he doesn't have it internalized the way that, that Franklin does. But Jefferson's level of biblical literacy is, is much higher than your average Americans would be today. I think one of the differences also between Franklin and Jefferson is that Jefferson fancies himself a sort of lay biblical scholar in a way that Franklin did not. Mm. And so Jefferson as an adult apparently uh, not only reads the Bible, but he reads the New Testament and Greek uh, sort of for personal edification. And he reads the Septuagint, the, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible uh, regularly, even as president. He, 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 he does this for uh, edification, personal devotion, I guess, of, of a sort, and, and education just because he thought that's what a, a learned gentleman should be doing uh, with, with his time is, is pursuing learning. And, and in that world, the Bible is right at the center of that. So, so Jefferson, he doesn't know the actual text of the Bible as well as Franklin does, but he knows the Bible and the biblical tradition pretty well. Yeah. You, you can see with Jefferson, Franklin, others that, you know, how influential Christianity was to the founding. You know, we have this I feel like ongoing question about America. You know, is America a Christian nation? Is it not? It seems more complicated than that, right? But talk about how Christianity at least influenced 
the founding of America. Yeah. I think where a lot of evangelicals go wrong with that question about Christian nation is that they have this list of five or six top tier founders, including people like Franklin and Jefferson, Washington, Madison, Adams, mm -hmm. Hamilton. And they get very focused on the personal faith of those five or six people. And um, that is not the most promising approach mm -hmm. because um, most of those people were at least very quiet about their own personal faith, like someone like Washington. He talks a lot about religion, but he doesn't talk very much at all about his own faith. Jefferson and Franklin do, and they're clearly skeptics about basic Christianity. Um, but that doesn't mean that Christianity isn't important, or in the case of Jefferson, you know, that kind of broader theistic assumptions that would have been very widely shared among Americans in 1776. And so, you know, some historians, some more secular historians would look at the declaration and they would say, well, that all men are created equal is just window dressing. I mean, Jefferson doesn't mean, that doesn't carry any weight. I don't agree with that. Uh, Jefferson had other options as a way to say that, as I suggested before, and he said it in such a way where God is very active. Um, and, and I think that reflects Jefferson's own view about where our rights come from. And so is he citing chapter and verse from the Bible? No, and not in the Constitution either. Um, the Constitution is even more of a problem because God barely appears at all in the Constitution. Um, but there are very broadly held assumptions about the created order, about what's virtuous and what's sinful, um, about you, you know uh, religious liberty and things like that that are deeply inextricably shaped by the Christian tradition. Um, and so there's a way in which you know Jefferson, someone like Jefferson, can sort of mess around with the details of Christian doctrine. And I, you know, a sophisticated cosmopolitan learned man doesn't believe in the, you know, these simplistic doctrines, but his whole worldview is still shaped by this kind of Christian canopy under which he grows up. And it's, it's not in terms of created order. I mean, it's not really fundamentally challenged in his lifetime. Mm. One more question. You've devoted your life to the project of history and uh, trying to tell it well. When people, and especially Christians, think about a complicated figure like Jefferson, uh, historical figures, where on the one hand, he wrote words that really fueled freedom movements, not just here, but around the world. You could argue that those words, in, in some ways, whether it was intentional or not by him, they, they fueled, in some ways, civil rights movement, because people always referred back to them, whether it's Fred, Frederick Douglass or Lincoln or MLK and others. At the same time, you know, owned slaves, had a, had an exploitive relationship with a, a slave that produced children. How should we think about these complicated historical figures? You know, how should we remember them, study them? What advice do you have? Yeah, and this is more pertinent today than ever, I mean, because we live in an age of controversies about, you know, cancel culture and yeah. pulling down statues and renaming schools. and. Yeah. Um, there are extremes that people go to on this. Uh, you know, if there, if we can identify uh, a sin, moral failing in someone's life that is totally unacceptable, you know, uh, by especially by today's standards, that we just pay no more attention to them, that we that we get rid of them 
uh, from kind of national memory and certainly any kind of position of, of honor uh, all the way to the other extreme of, of you know, not, just not putting up with any kind of criticism of the, these are great people and, and almost kind of, you know, saints within civil religion. And so you, how dare you talk about, you know, Sally Hemings and, and the problems of Jefferson and, and some deep, grievous moral problems. And so I guess I, I tend to take a, a, a sort of middle approach, which is not very popular these days, but but I, I do think it's the right way, which is that we have to be honest, uh, even about people that, you know, we like a lot. I mean, Christian leaders, uh, you know, I've written about George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the, of the 18th century that a lot of Christians admire, but he not only owned slaves, but was a pro-slavery advocate, difficult to, to deal with for, for a lot of Christians uh, like me. You know, for, for someone like Jefferson, um, there's no excusing. Uh, I, I mean, it's not just that he was a conventional slave owner, but uh, I mean, as you said, I mean, he had this long-term sexual relationship with Sally Hemings, um, and there's lots of other you know, moral problems in his life. I mean, there's just no getting around these things that even in his, the context of his time, they would have been re regarded as immoral. Um, some of the things that he did in the way, the way that he lived. But what do we do about that? I mean, do we just reject him, uh, uh, you know, cancel him? I, I think it's better for our first option, at least, to just ponder and sort of sit with what this was like and what it did to our country grieve in the ways that we need to. But I also think you have to take a step back and think, do I know I would have done better than him if I was in his position? And how, how do I know that? And that, that's a pretty sobering question to, to reflect that if, if I had been born into a slave owning family in you know, the mid 1700s, would I have ended up being anti-slavery? That's, that's a little tougher to answer. And so I think some of the spirit of the canceling people is uh, to demonstrate our sort of virtue by contrast to people in the past. Um, but we're not living their lives, we're living our lives. And so we don't know what it would have been like if we had been in, in Jefferson's shoes. That's not to excuse what he did, um, but it is to make us maybe a little more humble about the way that we think about the past. And I, I think in general, it's better to be humbled by our study of the past than to tout our own virtue because of our study of the past. That's a great way to wrap up the conversation. I want to com commend you for this new book, uh, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Hope uh, gets a wide audience. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. Podcast.